God bless his holy word today as it is read and as it is preached. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to our text, having read earlier in our Old Testament scripture reading Joshua chapter 9, the entire chapter. Let us focus our attention as far as the reading of the text upon verse 15. Joshua chapter 9, verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. As we continue our study of what the Holy Scriptures teach about national covenanting, we come this Lord's Day to consider whether a national covenant is lawful and binding if one of the parties in the covenant that enters this covenant should under some false pretense or under some cloak of deception intend to gain some advantage by entering into that covenant. They enter into it with some degree of deception in some way. Uh, Does that invalidate? Does that make the covenant null and void is the question. For example, seeking to forge an alliance with a more powerful nation in order to secure some type of protection. But in so doing, there is deception that is engaged in, perpetrated in, uh, in establishing that covenant. (coughs) Historically, we can see how this is very applicable. For at the time in which the Solemn League and Covenant was sworn by the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland in 1643, King Charles I was waging a war against his own parliament and against his own people there in England in order to assert his own unlawful authority over the people of England. Now this civil war in 1643 was turning in favor of the king's royal forces. The Parliament of England in desperation reached out to the Kingdom of Scotland for military help and aid. And they suggested that they form this civil league between them between the kingdom of Scotland and the kingdom of England in order to unite their forces and overcome the tyranny of King Charles I. Now, Scotland was open to the idea, but only if England was also willing to include in that civil league a solemn religious covenant whereby these kingdoms should also make every effort to promote the one true Christian religion in their respective kingdoms based upon a common confession of faith, common catechisms, common directory for public worship, and common form of church government. The Solemn League and Covenant was sworn to God and ratified by the respective parliaments by the respective churches and by the people of England, Ireland, and Scotland. However, after the civil war in England began to turn in favor of the parliamentary forces against King Charles I and his royal forces, it became apparent that many in England promoting independency and sectarianism had forged the Solemn League and Covenant in order to secure the military support of Scotland but had not dealt honestly in the religious part of the covenant. The independents in England 
complained that they did not share the same interpretation of the religious aspects of the Solemn League and Covenant. However, they never bothered to raise these differences at the time that they needed the military help and support of Scotland. It was only until the tide was turning in their favor that this became very apparent. Once King Charles I was on the run, the independents and sectarians in Parliament, in the Westminster Assembly, and in the army began to sing a different tune. Uniformity in religion was not our intention. Scotland was betrayed and was deceptively used. Was Scotland still bound to keep the Solemn League and Covenant with England even though there was deception on the part of many within England and no doubt even within Scotland itself? Or did the deception of those in England break the bond to which they had sworn to God and covenanted with one another? Well, let us consider today the following objection. A national covenant does not bind those nations who covenanted or their posterity where deception was practiced by one of the nations, one of the parties within that national covenant. A similar situation occurred, interestingly, and again, by design, we can seem to go back, thankfully to God's word, time and time and time again to find exactly what we need to answer these types of objections. A similar historical situation occurred with the covenanted nation of Israel. At the time in which Joshua ruled as civil leader and judge in Israel, for we find in Joshua chapter 9 how Israel was dealt with deceptively by the Gibeonites and yet how Israel honored the national covenant as being a lawful covenant in itself that could neither be broken by the generation that originally swore it nor by succeeding generations that were bound by it. <coughs> Let us turn to Joshua chapter 9 and consider the historical context of this national covenant that was forged under the cloak of deception by the Gibeonites. <clears throat> After the completion of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness which God in his wrath had appointed upon that unbelieving generation, Joshua led Israel into the land promised Israel by God. There were now mighty nations and fortified cities that stood in the way of Israel's conquest within Canaan. And the very first city to fall after they crossed the Jordan was the city, the mighty city of Jericho with its mighty walls all around it. And it was a fall, a quite literal fall of that city because those walls, those mighty walls crumbled all around the city as Israel marched around it and God brought it down uh, into stubble, into stones, into dust and they destroyed the inhabitants of that city. News of the destruction of Jericho by God spread no doubt like wildfire through the nations and the cities in Canaan. Great fear fell upon these idolatrous nations and cities. And thus they decided to form a, a civil alliance to war against Israel. We find in Joshua chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the, the royal city, for it was a royal city, Gibeon was a royal city, and the 
leaders of this city feared the God of Israel greatly and feared that they would be destroyed by Joshua as had been done to Jericho. Now, they were in a a tight spot. They, They could either put their trust in this military alliance among the idolatrous and heathen nations, the cities of Canaan, which they were a part, or they could forge a new alliance with Israel. Who are they going to choose to be their people? Who are they going to choose to be their God? God had given the Gibeonites, as we shall see, a fear of him that he had not given to the other nations or cities in the land. A different kind of fear. A fear that drove them to God and to his people rather than to the idols and the idolatrous nations that were within Canaan. He drove them to fear the Lord more than they feared the wrath of the other nations and cities that would seek their destruction, as we see in Joshua chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, where we read, And they said unto him, that is, the Gibeonites said unto Joshua, From a very far country thy servants are come, notice, because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon and to Og king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Thus the Gibeonites contrived a deceptive scheme in order to secure their safety and preservation from destruction. And we see that scheme laid out in uh, Joshua 9, verses 3 through 13. Briefly, they approached Joshua and the elders of Israel under the false pretense that they were ambassadors from a nation far away that lay distant Uh, from Canaan exactly where they never revealed to Joshua even when Joshua asked them where are you from very directly they just said from a faraway country they never revealed the name of the country that they were from and in order to pull this deceptive scheme off they wore old garments uh, worn out sandals they brought with them old sacks with moldy food and grain, bread within it, and and old broken wineskins that could no longer hold the wine because they had split asunder. Now, why didn't the Gibeonites simply send a delegation to Joshua and to the elders of Israel pleading for peace and unconditionally surrendering to Israel? Simply, you know, being upfront, being honest that they were neighbors, and why didn't they just come and submit to them their plea for a a covenant of peace with Israel? (coughs) Well, perhaps word had been circulated among the Gibeonites that God had commanded Israel not to make a covenant of peace with any of these idolatrous nations within the land. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 through 4 we read when the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it and hath cast out many nations before thee the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. 
Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son, for they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. Now, if that were the case, in other words, if they had heard that they, that Israel would not make a covenant of peace with any that were in the land that were neighboring nations within the land <clears throat> why did they pursue by means of the deceptive method that they did a covenant of peace well perhaps likewise the Gibeonites had also heard that God had commanded Israel to offer terms of peace to nations that were not within the immediate vicinity of Canaan, as we find in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Beginning with verse 10. When thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. And it shall be, if it make the answer of peace and open unto thee, then it shall be that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee, and they shall serve thee. And then it goes on to describe, if they will make no peace with thee, that thou art to destroy all the males, keep the females and, and, and the children alive, but destroy all the males uh, within those cities or nations but notice at the very end of this section to whom this applies um, when he says verse 15 thus shalt thou do unto all the cities which are very far off from thee which are not of the cities of these nations in other words this is the approach that you're to take with those nations who are far distant from you not those who are within your immediate vicinity Uh, in Deuteronomy 7 make no covenant with those who are in your immediate vicinity with those who are far away extend to them a covenant and if they make peace then they become your tributaries. They, they, they become those who serve you. Uh, who You become their masters and they your servants. But he says in verse 15, that's not the way you to deal with those who are implies. That's not the way you to deal with those who are nearby. That's the way, way you to deal with those who are far away at a distance from you to offer peace. So, again, perhaps the Gibeonites had heard what God had said to Moses, that if they were at a distance, then a covenant of peace could be offered to them. Thus, the Gibeonites craft this scheme to appear as though they had come from a far distant land to engage in a covenant of peace with Israel. We note that Joshua and the elders of Israel then investigated uh, that moldy food in verse 14, Joshua 9.14, and they concluded upon their investigation that they were from a distant land. But in making their conclusion, it specifically says that they did not seek the counsel of the Lord before entering into this covenant of peace. (coughs) Israel assumed that their investigation, they assumed that their understanding, they assumed that their senses could not be deceived. They leaned upon their own understanding and perception of what they saw with their eyes and heard with their ears. They did not turn to the Lord to seek his counsel but acted rashly in walking by sight rather than walking by faith in the word of the Lord as we shall see 
the deception of the Gibeonites did not annul this national covenant even upon all posterity once it was sworn, nor did the rashness of Joshua and the elders of Israel in entering into this national covenant annul it once it was sworn. Neither did the deception of the Gibeonites nor the rashness of Joshua and the elders annulled this covenant. <coughs> now many have sought to loose themselves from lawful covenants by saying they rashly entered into a covenant before fully understanding all of the ramifications and consequences of that covenant or that promise, whether it be a church covenant or a business covenant or a personal covenant. However, dear ones, if the content of that covenant is lawful in itself, then one's rashness or short-sightedness in entering into it or deception that is practiced in some circumstantial way in no way makes the covenant unlawful or provides a lawful reason for breaking it. How we must follow, dear ones, the precept of the Lord that we might enjoy the promise of the Lord when we read in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and the promise is, and he shall direct thy path. Dear ones, we cannot expect God to bless our decisions and to direct our paths if we are leaning upon our own understanding rather than trusting in His Word and acknowledging Him in the decisions that we make. Now when you look at the English word acknowledge in Proverbs 3, uh, verse, actually 3.6, 3, you should see in it the root word know. In fact, the Hebrew word used for acknowledge is the word know. Here the Lord commands us to know Him in all our ways. That is, not only to profess Him with our mouths as being the one who directs all our ways in a general sense, but also to know Him, even to know Him in a familiar sense in all the circumstances and decisions of life that confront us. There was how we become so preoccupied with the business of our day, with the work of our week, that we forget to know the Lord in all our ways, committing all of our ways unto Him, acknowledging and knowing Him familiarly in all of our ways. I ask, dear ones, is Christ simply a part of your life or is He your life? Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ. Paul didn't say, For to me to live is a part of Christ, that Christ is a part of my life, that's living but that Christ is his life. To me, to live is Christ. I asked you, have you relegated the Lord to a neat, comfortable corner in your thoughts, in your desires, through your words, and your deeds, so that he doesn't make your life too uncomfortable for you? Or do you want to know the Lord in familiar fellowship in all your ways, in both times of blessing and in times of suffering, do you want to know the Lord in all the circumstances of life? Do you want to know Him not only to comfort and to encourage you when you are downcast, but do you want Him to rebuke you and to correct you when you go astray? Do you want His will in your life more than anything else? Even if Following His will means that you daily must struggle to overcome that besetting sin in your life. 
do you still want and desire his will more than anything many will say they want to know the will of God for their lives but then when they know it they suppress it they ignore it because it is not what they wanted to hear in Jeremiah chapters 42 and 43 leaders of Israel or of Judah and Jerusalem come to Jeremiah the prophet and they say please tell us we'll listen to what you tell us God's will is just simply tell us and we'll do it and, and, and Jeremiah tells them you know remain in the land don't flee to Egypt even though Nebuchadnezzar has now conquered Jerusalem don't be afraid of Nebuchadnezzar stay and abide in Jerusalem don't leave after he tells them what God's will is they say in effect to him why did you tell us this bad news this isn't what we wanted to hear we wanted to hear that we should go to Egypt and that's what they did they went to Egypt though they said that they would follow and obey God's will if he revealed it to them see dear ones our desire to know the will of God for our lives or to receive his direction in our lives will be manifested in our desire to obey him and that which we already know to be his revealed will for our lives we're only practicing hypocrites if we want to know God's will where it is unclear and yet are unwilling to do his will in the areas in which he has already clearly made it known to us. Back to our account in Joshua 9. Joshua and the elders of Israel as the official representatives of Israel engage themselves in all of Israel and all of Israel's posterity in this covenant of peace with the Gibeonites in Joshua 9.15 where it says and Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live and the princes of the congregation swear unto them Now it wasn't until three days later that Israel learned that the Gibeonites had lied to them and deceived them, as we see in Joshua chapter 9, verses 16 through 17. The people of Israel were very upset with their leaders, with Joshua and the elders, and they murmured against them for entering rashly into this covenant of peace with the Gibeonites, we see in Joshua 9:18. But the elders of Israel, even though the people were murmuring against them, they did not follow the will of the people. They followed the will of God. They stood against the will of the people and said, No, we have engaged ourselves by the name of God in this covenant and in this league, and we will keep it. Why was it that the leaders then said they would keep this covenant? Well, first of all, because they had sworn in the name of the Lord. This is explicitly stated in Joshua 9.19. Secondly, because it was a lawful national covenant, even if it was engaged by way of deception on the part of the Gibeonites and by way of rashness on the part of the Israelites now this is inferred by good and necessary consequence that it was a lawful covenant from the following point that it was a lawful covenant from the following points inferred from the following points first when the people object to the covenant with the Gibeonites after learning of their deception Joshua and the elders of Israel upon review of the national covenant determined to keep it which they could not have done if it had been an unlawful covenant as we see in Joshua 9.19 they determined that they will keep this covenant what's inferred there but that they had investigated no doubt they had uh, also investigated it by way of the counsel of the Lord 
I would submit that they believed and stood upon the fact that this was a lawful covenant that they had engaged themselves in. Now, secondly, it is clear that God avenged this covenant of peace in that he gave Israel a mighty victory over the Canaanite nations that sought to destroy the Gibeonites for having made covenant with Israel in Joshua 10. That was the time in which God caused the sun to stand still so that they could finish defeating and destroying the, the various nations the, uh, in Canaan. A mighty, miraculous victory. But how did it get started? Well, the, the, those nations learned that the Gibeonites had betrayed them and had united with the Israelites. And they were coming after the Gibeonites. Israel came to the defense of the Gibeonites because they had engaged in a lawful covenant. God blessed them in destroying these other nations because of their keeping this covenant. Now, just previously, God brought them to defeat before a much, much smaller group of people at the city of Ai because there was within their camp an abomination one had, who had broken the ban that they were not supposed to have taken anything from the city of Jericho and Achan had taken it and had hidden it under his tent and God brought them to defeat. But here, he gives them a mighty victory prospering them, showing to them that he approved of what they had done. But furthermore, he demonstrates, God demonstrates that he avenges this covenant as his covenant, as being a lawful covenant, in that he brought a plague upon Israel during the reign of David in 2 Samuel 21.1, about 400 years later, when King Saul slaughtered many of the Gibeonites. Perhaps Saul did so out of some kind of misguided zeal in his part to purify Israel of this Canaanite race. But, for those reasons, I would submit to you that we can, we can presuppose and we can say that this covenant was a lawful covenant. That Joshua and the rulers of Israel bound themselves to with the Gibeonites, even in spite of the deception and the rashness by which it was entered into. But then uh, we come to another question. Why wasn't this national covenant unlawful? When it violated the commandment of God which stated that Israel was not to make a covenant with any of the neighboring nations. Remember we read that back in Deuteronomy 7, the first four verses. Let me answer that question seek to answer that question by the following. First, God honored, I would submit to you, that God honored the trust of the Gibeonites to submit themselves to Israel and to Israel's God, which was the implicit basis and terms of the covenant of peace which was extended to various nations. Based upon... Deuteronomy chapter 20 verses 10 through 11 that covenant of peace that we read concerning earlier in the sermon in that covenant it presupposes or, or, or uh, mentions that the gods which were erected were to be if they refused to make peace they were to not only destroy the males, but to destroy all of their gods, which would imply that those to whom peace was extended, one of the conditions of peace was that they would destroy their gods and they would acknowledge Jehovah to be the one true God. They would become proselytes of Israel. They would submit to Israel and to Israel's God. This is likewise, I would suggest, uh, implied in Joshua chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, where we read 
concerning the Gibeonites that though they are cursed, it says, uh, Joshua uh, says of them, uh, in verse 23, that is that they were cursed in the sense that they would not be a free people because they had been deceptive. They would be servants. And they would uh, be servants in such a way as to draw, peop- uh, to draw water, not only for the common people, but notice they were to draw water for the altar of the Lord. Uh, water that was used for, uh, no doubt, that was needed to cleanse, to purify, to uh, keep the altar uh, clean, the altar of the Lord from the sacrifices that were offered. Uh, they would have a very special place, though it was the job of a servant, they would have a very special place near to the altar of the Lord, the Gibeonites. <clears throat> that was, again, the curse that was upon them. They were saved. Their lives were spared. They were amalgamated, as it were, into the body of Israel. But they had to be amalgamated, brought into the body of people uh, of the people of Israel to be that close to the altar, the tabernacle. They couldn't have been a people that were far away and never had any approach to or anything like that near it. So it shows what, what uh, they were doing in making their covenant of peace on their parts. Even though God had commanded Israel to destroy all of the nations that dwelt near them, the reason for this command was, listen closely, the reason for this command, the stated reason for this command was the idolatry of these nations that would infect the Israelites if they were permitted to peacefully coexist according to Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 2 through 5 and other places in the Pentateuch thus if a nation was willing to submit itself to Israel and to Israel's God to become proselytes then the reason the very base the very reason for destroying them that reason stated by God no longer existed this condition of peace, it would appear, was one to which the Gibeonites were very willing to submit. Second, though the Gibeonites secured peace with Israel by way of lying and deception, which was sinful and unlawful, their desire to be saved by the God of Israel was present among them, as even in the case of Rahab, a harlot in Joshua chapter 2 who likewise lied and deceived in her weakness but yet she was justified by faith in the living God because she too had heard what God had done through the people of Israel and destroying the nations, uh, Egypt, and, and how God had brought plagues upon Israel and rescued his people. She had heard of God's deliverance and placed her confidence and her faith in the living God. And she likewise became a proselyte within the camp of Israel and even is in the genealogy of Christ. Likewise, remember that Jacob lied and deceived his father, again, unlawful and sinful, in order to obtain the birthright which Esau, his brother, had despised. But Jacob's lie and deception did not make the blessing promised to him null and void. Because, again, in his very weakness and practicing that which was sinful, he yet believed in that promise and that blessing. God does not approve of the lies and deception as means to obtain the desired blessing from God and he does not always give blessings, accompany them uh, if there is a lie or deception, but he does in such cases approve 
of the faith and the trust found in the heart of those who desired the blessing and the salvation of God. The end does not justify the means, but God takes into account even the weakness of faith of those who flee to him for salvation. You know, dear ones, this ought to be a great encouragement to us all, to all of us who are weak, who come to the Lord with our sins, who flee unto the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, and rest in his covenant of peace with us, that he will save and deliver us from the wrath to come and from his destruction, regardless of the weakness of our faith. And if our faith is in him, he will deliver us. He will save us from our enemies. Third, carefully note that God hardened the hearts of all of the other nations around Israel so as to destroy them. So he says, so God says, implying that he had softened the hearts of the Gibeonites in order to save them. In Joshua chapter 11, verses 19 through 20, we read the following. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all other they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. What inference are we to draw about the Gibeonites? If he did not have favor upon these that he destroyed, he had favor upon the Gibeonites. If he hardened these other nations, he softened the hearts of the Gibeonites in bringing them to Israel and to Israel's God. Thus it would appear that the national covenant made with the Gibeonites was not unlawful because the terms of the covenant were not immoral. Idolatry was not permitted to be exercised by the Gibeonites and they would become proselytes submitting themselves to Israel and to Israel's God. The lying deception as to who the Gibeonites actually were was unlawful, but was not, that was not, a part of the specific terms or conditions of peace found in that national covenant. Though there was a deception as to who they really were, there was no deception as to their willingness to surrender themselves to Israel and to Israel's God. Thus, there may be circumstances, I would submit, there may be circumstances surrounding a lawful covenant that involve lies and deception, as in this case. However, if the terms of the covenant are lawful, the covenant binds and obliges all parties and posterity also, if so extended as to the moral person of nations and churches. In conclusion, dear ones, likewise, even if there was deception on the part of many in England who entered into the Solemn League and Covenant, and even if they entered into that national covenant so that they could merely secure the military aid and support of Scotland, but did not expose their own private interpretation of problems with the Solemn League and Covenant in a public form for fear that Scotland would not come to their aid. And if many rashly entered into that national covenant out of a blind zeal, that covenant still binds those original kingdoms and all their posterity. Why? Because the terms of the covenant are moral and lawful and because that national covenant was sworn to Almighty God who will not hold them guiltless who take his name in vain by swearing falsely. Listen closely to the words of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in this regard. This first one is a longer quote. 
but it, it is a very good quote uh, supporting what we have been defending in this particular sermon. And you can see the principles that, that they were leaning upon uh, even as taught from the Holy Scripture. This is from the Acts of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland uh, dated August 6, 1649 pages 474 through 475. Quote, Although there were none in the one kingdom who did adhere to the covenant, yet thereby were not the other kingdom nor any person in either of them absolved from the bond thereof. Since in it we have not only sworn by the Lord, but also covenanted with him. It is not the failing of one or more that can absolve the other from their duty or tie to him. Besides, the duties therein contained being in themselves lawful, and the grounds of our tie thereunto moral, though the other do forget their duty, yet doth not their defection free us from that obligation which lies upon us by the covenant in our places and stations. And the covenant being intended and entered into by these kingdoms as one of the best means of steadfastness for guarding against declining times, it were strange to say that the backsliding of any should absolve others from the tie thereof, especially seeing our engagement therein is not only national, but also personal, everyone with uplifted hands swearing by himself, as it is evident by the tenor of the covenant. From these and other important reasons, it may appear that all these kingdoms joining together to abolish that oath by law, yet could they not dispense therewith much less can any one of them or any part in either of them do the same. The dispensing with oaths have hitherto been abhorred as anti-Christian and never practiced and avowed by any but by that man of sin. Therefore those who take the same upon them as they join with them in his sin so must they expect to partake of his plagues. And then this smaller citation and quote from the Acts of General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland on July the 27th, 1649, page 460. Quote, Albeit the League and Covenant be despised by the prevailing party in England, and the work of uniformity through retardments and obstructions that have come in the way be almost forgotten in these kingdoms. Yet the obligation of that covenant is perpetual, and all the duties contained therein are constantly to be minded and prosecuted by every one of us and our posterity. Amen. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee again that Thy Word is sufficient. O Lord our God, we thank Thee that it is complete and perfect for doctrine, repro uh, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. We pray, our Father, that Thou would, would give to us uh, a love to be obedient unto the covenants that do bind us. That, Lord, we would not be those who, who think that we can wander away and astray uh, from Thee and from the ties and and in the bonds, Lord, that we are bound to by way of even the covenant of our forefathers. For they are perpetual. And we pray, our Lord, that we would not look for, for excuses and reasons 
uh, as to deception, as to rashness. Uh, if the covenant, dear one, dear Lord, be be uh, uh, lawful and faithful, Lord, we pray that Thou would help us by Thy grace to honor it, to uphold it. We pray, our Father, that Thou would hear our prayer uh, even today through Christ our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.